Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. Many of our conversations are focused on reparations for the past horrors of slavery, and rightfully so. But did you know that human slavery is still a very real thing today? According to the United Nations, between 20 to 40 million people are in some form of human trafficking, with many cases happening right here in the United States, and the majority are children. My next guest experienced this firsthand in the city of Sacramento and has been working on ending human trafficking since 2008. Ashley Bryant, CEO of Three Strands Global Foundation, joins us today to share her story and mission to end human slavery. This is a difficult and sensitive conversation. However, I do hope you stay with us as keeping our heads in the sand will not end it. Welcome, Ashley, and thank you for being on Be The Change. Thank you so much, Christine. I am so pleased to be here with you today. I'm thrilled to have you. The listeners do not know, but you and I met about five years ago. And I thought I was pretty awake to these issues. We met through a a good friend, uh, Jeffrey Brown, and you sat down with me and told me some horrors of which I imagined would be outside of this country. But in fact, they were right here in Sacramento, California. Can you just give us a, a background on what got you involved in human trafficking and why it's such a passionate subject for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that important to go back to 2008, where you just actually mentioned my good friend's daughter, 17 years old, you know, high school, um, hanging out with other 17-year-olds in the parking lot of our sleepy suburb of Sacramento just during spring break, right? They were socializing and um, an attractive 22-year-old befriended them. And he was actually an acquaintance of some of the high schoolers in the crowd. And there are probably 20 or 30 or so kids that were hanging out as we sometimes see high schoolers and, and teenagers do. And so for hours, they were socializing and he was what I would say working the crowd. What they didn't know is he was a trafficker, right? He was a human trafficker who was looking for who was most vulnerable in the crowd. And so little by little, he went and, and talked to all the kids trying to figure out who was that uh, most vulnerable child. Unfortunately, it was my friend's daughter and After hours, he actually asked to take all the kids home. He offered to take them home in his Hummer. And it's important to know that this is human tracking is not a take and grab crime, right? It is a crime of figuring out who's most vulnerable, coercion, grooming, right? There is this manipulation. It is not a white van, grab someone, put them in the back of the car, or a taken like the movie, right? That's we need those myths we need to debunk because we need to think of it as it truly factually is. Sure, sure. I want to add in that you mentioned he was driving a Hummer. Mm -hmm. This is an expensive car. 
No, and I think it's important to know the perpetrators could be any ethnicity, any gender, right? Any socioeconomic level. It's, it is why we often say in this movement that, that victims hide in plain sight because it's hard to be able to identify. So in our story, really, um, my friend's daughter, they all went in the Hummer and he took the children home one by one. But when she was the only one left in the car and he passed her house and she said, hey, you just passed my house. And he had put drugs in her soda when she wasn't looking. And she said, you passed my house. And he said, no, I have other plans for you. And he drove her back to his parents' house where he was living and he raped her there. And then after that, then he posted her for sale on Craigslist and he sold her online to a trafficker in the Bay Area in Fremont, who then um, had her held in a motel where she was sold 15 to 20 times a day from that motel before the FBI and the county sheriff recovered her. That story, I know, and it is that take a deep breath and then exhale. And because I, you know, I've lived this story for a lot of years, right? And, and it's really fueled us as a foundation to do our work. But I think if there's a pause, it's an emotional pause to be acknowledged that, oh my gosh, this happened in the United States. It happened in a sleepy suburb. It happens in all, all 50 states. It happens in rural and urban communities. I mean, it hides in plain sight. And in this case, my friend's daughter was the most vulnerable. She was trafficked for commercial sex to men who were seeking to have sex with minors. And then she was recovered and brought home. And the whole reality of how does she be healed then began. And that's soon after is when, after he was actually sentenced, the original man who took her and sold her online was sentenced to 12 and a half years in federal prison. And he served 10. He was released this last September. And Um, back into society. So that whole journey um, is what launched the nonprofit that we're working day in and day out with. So there's so much there. And I think this is the horror of every mother, every parent. My son right now is hanging out with his friends. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. know, he's 13. He went out, I'm in New York City and I've tried to, to share this with others as well. I mean, after you and I, first met, I was on this crusade. I was like to let everyone know. I was very happy to hear that the schools here, the high schools here teach on this. Mm -hmm. But why do you think that it's so hidden, Ashley, from people thinking that, okay, so I live in the suburbs. I live in New York City. You know, I live in the Hamptons. You know, this isn't going to happen to my kid. And what are some of the, the reasonings behind it? I think you had told me that the young man, they get a significant amount of money. The time that they do is really not, I mean, 10 years is extensive, but it's still not enough. I know the young woman probably has emotional issues that she's never going to recover from. What do you see the circle here? Like, Yeah. So I like to be able to say, what's the landscape? And what exactly does this look like? And I think it's really important for me to start with survivor leaders first. So for years, I spent and still to this day, spend time with survivor leaders, understanding from their perspective, not only the who they are, what they believe to be their truth and what has happened in their life and how the journey of their life has progressed and gotten them to where they are today. And so it's really important to understand, to listen, to hear, to 
make that what we do is a movement based on that experience because it helps us be targeted in what we do, right? So, and then the other component that's not always done, but I had the opportunity to do so that I could understand this landscape that you're asking about mm-hmm. was I went to interview 65 inmates in prison who were not in prison for human trafficking, but had been involved in trafficking. About 60 so were there for murder, but most of them had been involved in trafficking. So really important to understand the perpetrator component also, because really when we look at the landscape of human trafficking, we're looking at root causes, right? Things that actually are happening that then make someone vulnerable to trafficking, And if we look at that piece of it, we understand far better the landscape and how to combat it. And we also are able to see the reality, how it could happen in urban or, you know, rural as well as any state. And that a perpetrator could be anyone as well as the victim could be anyone, right? So it really allows us to see that. So by really foundationally looking at those two perspectives, it really has helped me understand why it is a crime that hides in plain sight. And here's the reason. Because you have this vulnerability in both of these places, both from the perpetrator as well as the victim. And from that vulnerability and the root causes that have gotten them to that vulnerability, their exploitation happens. So whether that is on the perpetrator side as a business, that is truly a business that they're running to be able to make money off the exploitation of people, or it is a victim who believes that someone loves them, needs that love because of the root cause that maybe they had abuse when they were young and is seeking um, to be able to be loved or it is someone that is seeking to have food or shelter as a root cause is not being addressed. And so in order to do that, they then get exploited by those who have this business. And so I think that's really important for us to be able to acknowledge that's why it hides in plain sight. Because the reality is, is it's vulnerabilities in the whole place of the landscape that is being exploited for profit. Some of the things that I noticed in my research I was looking at is there's five things that are contributors to people falling into it. Substance abuse, so drugs. And we all know that any child can fall into drug abuse right now. Two, a runaway or a homeless youth. Mm -hmm. Three was migration and relocation. Yes. Four was unstable housing. And five was mental health. Right where there's abuse. And that's what that goes to. So what you just pointed out, Christine, which I think is so important is those are five root causes, right? Those are five things that if not addressed, they are vulnerable to trafficking. And that's a really important, that's actually why we speak at Three Strands Global Foundation about fact versus fiction. Because the reality is, is those root causes aren't being addressed. So they're highly vulnerable. Anyone can be a victim of the crime, but think about our children. This is why it hides in plain sight. You know, a child who is vulnerable from a mental health perspective, socioeconomically, it could be across the board, right? But that child could be exploited and trafficked either for commercial sexual exploitation or for labor in either place. And so I think it's so important to be able to speak to the fact that this does happen in the United States. We know it. There's a study that was done in 2016 in Texas by the University of Texas, Austin, 
And we work in Texas in our prevention program, and they reference this study quite frequently. And it, it was a study that was just done on Texas on how many victims of human trafficking are just in the state of Texas. Because we use, as a movement, the ILO's numbers of about 100,000. But Texas did this study that I always think is, is worth mentioning because the state leadership mentions it. But there are 345,000 victims, according to them, in the state of Texas alone. So if that's accurate, then we know that in California, New York, right, Illinois, some of our larger population states have high numbers as well. And going back to this, it's hiding in plain sight. It is. And in looking at the map, I was shocked to see that, well, not shocked. I mean, I would think it's coastal, right? So I did see that was coastal. I'm figuring because there's a lot of border entry there and a lot of population on the coast, but it was, it was California, Texas, and Florida were the three states that received the most calls on the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Why those three states, do you think? Yeah, and so this goes to, you know, we've been doing this work for a, a while, more than a decade, and I think that when the level of awareness is rising in a place, in a state, or in a community, you're going to have more reporting because someone all of a sudden becomes aware, like you talked about five years ago, right? Your awareness goes up. You start to look around you in a different way as to what's happening around you. You notice things differently, and then you hopefully, as a citizen, report it, right? So I think that in California, you know, our headquarters is in California, and we've done a really good job in the state about raising the level of awareness. Texas has two. The governor is, he has his own commercial sexual exploitation task force that looks at how do we solve this here in Texas. So I think in some of those states, you're going to see actually more reporting, not only because there are victims of human trafficking, but also because the level of awareness is being elevated. What about the borders? So, you know, with our our situation now, as we know, politically, there's a lot of, you know, talking about immigrants and people coming in. But what I've been looking at is the fact that there's a lot of children right now who are separated from their parents. Mm -hmm. This can't be good for them, can it? No, no. And, but I also want to make sure to emphasize that we don't want to get caught in the propaganda that human trafficking is the, is the only thing happening at the border, because that's not the only thing that may be happening, right? Because in our political system, there was a lot of spin into that place. And what we know is that, yes, children are separated from the parents. That should never happen. We, I actually have one of my dearest friends who was working on a case on behalf of a, a mom who needed her to get a, connected with her six-year-old son. But one of the things that Three Strands um, will always do is to fact versus fiction, not sensationalize, and tell people what we know to be true based on our experience and what we know. So the trafficking will happen in all sorts of places. There will be those who come across the border to seek freedom and asylum so that they can get away from the abuse or the political unrest, right? There's lots of reasons why they come to the United States and we should be the ones who have safe and who are taking care of them. And they may be escaping human trafficking, but I think as we look at our situation in the United States, many of our victims are Americans, and we need to recognize that it's, it is our children and our, our citizens who are perpetrators as well as victims too, right? All the way from little, all the way up to adults in the United States, in addition to overseas as well. So I think- I see. Yes. I think what I had meant though, is that the children have been separated, right? And so now they go into a foster care system, mm-hmm. which we do also know that many of the children who are in the foster care system in the United States are extremely vulnerable to trafficking. Yes. And so 
I guess I'm looking at the system as a whole as to how important it is that although people come here for a better life, that it's so important to not separate those families and that we need to keep them connected. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I'll give you a statistic that that may seem shocking, but is accurate because in our work with Employee Plus Empower, which is our survivor um, employment program, in Sacramento, in the region that we work here in our headquarters, 95% of those we serve in our program came from the foster care system. Yeah. So those we serve are survivors at risk, right? 95% of those come from that place. So absolutely positively, we want to be able to connect. We want people to stay with their families, with those that they trust, that we're not into a system that, that needs great overhaul, <laughs> Right. But we want, and it's not because social workers aren't doing their jobs or don't have hearts to be able to connect with kids who are in the system, because don't get me wrong. We work with amazing social workers in different States, but it is a hard system to navigate. And unfortunately, whether we like it or not, statistics are real and are, and this, in this case, these are the ones that we work with that 95% are coming from that system tells us something as we do our work. Exactly. I, in looking at this in the research that I spent, then this morning, I, you know, I spent a half an hour looking at all the data. I was easily able to connect the dots and looking yeah. at it. And what I can't understand is why our politicians aren't doing this, or even if they are, like, why is this still continuing? You know, clearly we need more focus on, on keeping our homes together and helping families stay together and giving them income on mental health and substance abuse. And all this, a stable family, a happy family, you know, having an income, eliminating those problems would eliminate the trafficking in many cases. Why do you think this still exists? Is it come down to its profit, right? It's money. Yeah, it is. It is really the profit piece. And it is exploiting a vulnerability, right? We, we talked about those five root causes. And you know, one of the things I think is important of the time I spent um, interviewing inmates, one of the inmates said to me, hurt people, hurt people. So not only profit, but hurt people, hurt people. You just spoke of mental health, right? And what we know about mental health that's not addressed is it's not a good thing. And so when hurt people, hurt people is the mantra of a trafficker, there is a separation of humanity in that person, right? They no longer have the ability to see an individual as the gifts, the talents, the value they have, except for the dollar sign, which is to get rid of the humanity. And they become the prophet, right? Instead of being able to look after, to care for those things that we know must be done in order for someone to thrive. So failure to thrive is what happens. And whether that person themselves, which is in this quote, hurt people, hurt people, he was a victim of abuse and of trafficking himself. And so that piece had hit his brain. And then that is what he put out into the world in the fact that he was a trafficker. Yeah, I understand that. Hurt people hurt people. I mean, it's quite obvious. And again, yet we still can't seem to figure this out and to get people the help that they need. Um, Yeah. And you know, one of the things I actually just spent some time thinking through, because I, one of my gifts is I am a vision caster, but I also love to be able to step up to sort of 20,000 feet and look at a problem and say, how do we get the puzzle pieces into the right places, right? That I love to be able to do. That's one of the things I enjoy. And so when I look at this landscape, which is what I, how I describe it, 
there are four P's that are a part of when we look at this movement. We talk about prosecution, we talk about a protection, we talk about partnerships and prevention. And so we've got to say, if as a nation, if those are our North Stars are, these four Ps, right? If that's what we've said, then what are we doing in each of those four Ps to actually deliver, right? And to address root causes so that our four Ps make sense, right? If we're not addressing root causes so the four Ps make sense, if we just shoot into the four Ps without actually looking at holistically, then we will not get further in actually change. And to your point, then it won't make a difference or a dent, right? And we can't do a shotgun approach. We really have to be thoughtful in that place in these four areas. And our whether we like it or not, our nation has chosen those four. So we need to be able to strategically and thoughtfully think about each of those four and how, what is it that we want to do? Let's try, let's iterate. If it doesn't work, let's change. Let's do, you know, that's the process of learning. And what you know? are the four again, Ashley? So prosecution, no order, right? It's all prosecution, protection, partnerships, and prevention. Amazing. The average teen that enters this, that is trafficked, is between 12 and 14 years old. So that's middle school. It's a very vulnerable time. And many are runaway girls who were also sexually abused. But also, you know, just girls, it's a very difficult age. I came from a good family. And at 15, I I was doing some things that were, you know, could have gotten me into a lot of trouble. And I know that they're getting the children via text and that's like kind of the number one way. What can parents do? What should we look out for and be very aware of? Yeah, I know. It's a great question. So in this time of pandemic where our children are online so much more than they've ever been online in their lives, and they already were, you know, I always call, I always call myself a digital immigrant versus a digital native because my children are digital natives, right? And I have to, as a parent, I have to acknowledge that and accept it. And then I have to be a parent in that place, right? So what that means is you really need to understand that you need to know what they're doing online. You have to, you have to, that's part of the relationship. You know, it is not about punitive. It is not about being shocked by maybe what you see. It's about meeting them where they're at and having open conversation. Research shows they want to talk to us as parents and caregivers. They want to be able to describe what's happening in their lives, but they may be afraid or tentative. We need to open up and say, hey, this is an open question. It allows you to talk. I need to listen and not say anything as parents, but I need to have that relationship with you. You want it. Research shows it so that I can understand what they're doing online as well as in person, but right now, especially online. So we need to know what apps they're on, social media-wise. Are they on Snapchat? Are they on Instagram? Are they, they're probably not on Facebook because that's for old people. But you know, how did they, what are they doing? Are they on Tinder? Are they on YouTube? Are they gaming? You know, all of these places are freeway entrances to their life by traffickers or anyone who would want to exploit them. Anyone. And so in that space, we've got to be the gatekeepers. And sometimes parents, I think, have a hard time. Well, it's, it's my connection to them is the phone and I don't want to, I don't want to invade their privacy. Oh my goodness. Yes, you do. Because I tell you what, you don't want to have to go down the path that my good friend and so many who I have sat next to over the last decade, you don't want to go down that path. You'd much rather be the gatekeeper and not in a punitive way than be the one who has to deal with the healing of the trauma that has happened to that child. Right. I couldn't agree more. You know, I do have some friends that are like, oh, well, this is his and or hers, and I have to honor that privacy. And well, I have a 
very open discussion with my son about that, that I will check his phone. Mm-hmm. And just so he understands that. Now, I'm not overly invasive. I also have long conversations with him about how this looks, that the people, when they text, they're often someone that you know. Yeah. It's someone who's going to be nice to you. You know, mm-hmm. they're not going to come across as a perpetrator. They are, you know, like this, you know, scary human. They're probably going to be well-dressed, handsome, mm-hmm. and they're going to throw a lot of things towards the ego. And I know as a young woman, as a, when I was a young woman, <laughs> older now, but I can remember at that age where men were giving me or, you know, whoever you would, you know, identify with as your attraction, Right. You would get attention by that. I didn't know what to do with it, yeah. right? I was far too young to have that, but right. I did know it was power. Yeah. And that's very, you know, in middle school, power is everything. There's, it's constantly a power play. And my son will do things to, you know, because he wants to be seen as, I guess, I don't know, smarter than, you know, all that. It's very competitive at the, right. with the parents. It's normal. So parents understand that, right? These yeah. Yes. And it's independence too, right? This is the time of their life where they start to pull away to need to be independent, which is good and healthy, but we cannot forget ever that the part of their brain that would allow them to understand that what a perpetrator looks like or does will not be fully developed until they're in their twenties. And as parents and caregivers, that responsibility falls on us. Thank you. Fully developed in their twenties. Because I also know that- Yes. A lot of parents are like, well, my child is so smart right now and he or she is far above where they should, you know, and emotionally sophisticated. No, 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 no. Right. It's not until their twenties. Yeah. No. And that's okay. Cause that's normal. That's yeah. healthy. Right. We that's want a- that. Yeah, we want that. But at the same time, knowledge is power. We talk a lot about with kids. Look, it's not about scaring them or fear. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Your open conversation, your ability to say, hey, you know, let me give you an example different from trafficking. Let's say there's a car for sale on this website. And I think it's a wonderful car. And I think we should actually be able to go and look at this car. And the car, actually, as we figure out, we say, yeah, we'd love to see it. And the person says, well, I need a deposit in order to be able to bring it by and, you know, and just let the child go with it. And they, because their brain isn't developed, would think that is fabulous. Let's put a deposit and then let's go look at it. Well, it was complete spoof. There was no car. That was a person who was taking and trying to get $500 of a deposit and then move to the next person. But with an adult brain where you think, well, I wouldn't give a deposit before I actually saw the car, but the part of the brain in a child wouldn't think that way, even until they're 20 years old. So that's our space to be. When you think of it outside of exploitation, sometimes you go, oh yeah, well that of course makes sense. That makes it easier as parents for us to say, well, of course that makes sense. We should then make sure we know what apps they're on. We should be being able to test you know, look at their phones and be able to say what's going across. We should encourage them to keep things private, right? A private setting rather than a public setting, only because that pathway becomes wider if it's a public setting versus a private setting. You know, things like that are good and healthy for us to be able to have those conversations with our kids. Well said, well said. And I encourage everyone to to do that with their kids because it just takes once as it was with your friend. Yeah. And you know, let me give you this example. So I I have four children. Um, And when we started this, they were very young. Now they're, you know, our oldest is 24. And, but our daughter, and this is a good example and a good reminder, someone who, who's in the movement, who's been for a long time, she has her settings on private, but she was in a chat with her friends, four really good friends in middle school. 
So it's been a while. She's now at college, but in middle school in a chat. Well, what she didn't know was these middle schoolers who she was friends with, one of them had changed their number. So the new person who had that number was not her friend, nor did the others know that it wasn't her friend. But the person was an adult. And the person was someone who was meaning no good to these kids. And so in the conversation, they acted like they were a child and they connected with the other three, like they want, and they asked to go to the movies. And so my daughter thinking this was her friend from middle school, they all were ready to go to the movies. And unfortunately at the last minute, the other two weren't allowed. So my daughter went to the movies, to the theater. When she got to the theater, which we dropped her off, right? Because these were people she knew that we thought when she got there and nobody was there, and nobody that she recognized, she started to feel in her gut something was wrong. And so she was very scared and she came home and we, you know, we called, we came, went and got her. She said nothing to us at first, not one word. And later that night, she came into our room, all tears and said, this was someone who I didn't know and I didn't know it. And she felt shame about it, right? Which is why it hides in plain sight, right? And we said, oh my gosh, we gave her a hug, told her we loved her, that she had done the right thing by listening to that inner voice and saying, something's not right. I need to leave this situation. And when we were able to do some investigating to find out that wasn't her friend's number anymore, but just right there is an example of how it happens where then a child feels shame because they went to do something that they thought was okay, but wasn't it. And then how do they talk to their parents? And if the open door isn't open, they can't have that conversation. Wow. Really? Wow. And this is you. you I mean, at that point you were already well active in this area. Yeah. It can happen to anyone. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Ashley, I'd love to hear more about Three Strands Foundation, um, what you do, how you were helping, all the wonderful, incredible things you've done. Yeah. No, I would love to share. So our initiatives are three E's. We like three things in threes. (laughs) Um, So it's prevention through employment, prevention through education, and prevention through engagement. So three E's. So the prevention through employment, we actually, um, in 2016, started a a program called Employ Plus Empower. And it was really, it's very specific for survivors and at-risk individuals, making sure that their basic needs, that those root causes are assessed and that we meet those root causes, whether it's mental health or housing or transportation, whatever those might be, we make sure that they are stable. Um, And once they are stable, then we have a pipeline, three different pipelines to employment with two social venture partners and then a direct pipeline to employers. We've employed over almost 315 survivors and at-risk individuals, and we call them our clients since 2016. Our retention rate is over 80% in that place, and our placement rate is also over 82%. Super proud of that program. Our social workers and caseworkers just are amazing. In fact, our staff meeting this morning, we had one of our social workers share, we have walked alongside one of our clients for two years and she is now just thriving, but it takes right this journey to what you said earlier. It is not an easy journey of healing. It is not an easy journey to sustainability or to being stable and we are in it for the long run. And so two years later, we are now walking in this place where she has not only been in a job for more than 90 days, but thriving in that job and stable in housing, stable in her mental health. So it's just really exciting things to be able to celebrate with 300 plus clients in that employment space. 
The other space of what we do is called um, Prevention to Education, which is our PROTECT program. It's prevention organized to educate children on trafficking. Uh, We work with that program in the entire state of California, the entire state of Texas, and the entire state of Utah, and now in the state of Michigan. It is a partnership that we came together with two other nonprofits, Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives and Love Never Fails, to build this PROTECT program. It's a four-pronged approach. starts with protocol, making sure that schools and social workers at a child welfare level, as well as um, law enforcement, understand what to do if they identify a student in the classroom, making sure that protocol is all designed so that it doesn't make it so that They fall through the cracks is what we say. We want to make sure that when they're identified, resources are delivered immediately to that student. The second prong is training of an entire campus, making sure that the entire campus understands what trauma is, they understand what trafficking is, they understand child abuse and neglect, and they understand the protocol. So it goes back to that first prong. Then the third is curriculum in the classroom. We have elementary, middle, and high school curriculum that is delivered from the teachers to the students because we believe that that teacher sees those children day in and day out and needs to be the safe and trusted adult that delivers that curriculum. And then the last prong is research. So we have pre and post surveys for our training as well as our curriculum to make sure that everything is aligned as it is delivered. Um, And if we need to make tweaks that we can do that within the program itself. Um, I think it's important to note that this curriculum is based off of what we know from survivor leaders, as well as what I learned from inmates at San Quentin Prison. And the reason I say that is because it's foundationally about how do we do what you and I talked about earlier with our youth, our children, is how do we instill value and worth in them? How do we make sure that they understand how valuable and how worthy they are as individuals? And how do we make sure that as they go through life, that they continue to listen and trust their voice? They use it to be empowered, they're safe, they're connected, they're amplified and protected voice. So that's what that program is about. And uh, we just actually were awarded as part of a local education agency, some federal grants, which is exciting. So that's about that. There's a Freedom Meets Truth Act that you were able to tell us. So that falls sort of in our E of engagement. So our prevention to employment and then prevention to education and E engagement. So we believe strongly, strongly that this movement is about fact, not fiction, right? We've got to tell the truth about human trafficking. Otherwise, if it's sensationalized, no one's going to be able to help us or anybody else that is a victim of trafficking. We got to really see it for what it's at, what it is. So we just were one of 80 nonprofits that signed the letter that went to the Associated Press, as well as politicians and policymakers globally around the world that said, and leaders, that freedom needs truth. We cannot and no longer stand aside to say that the QAnon movement and the conspiracies that are out in the world can exist without saying that freedom needs truth. We need to be able to say the truth about what human trafficking is in the world. So within Three Strands Global Foundation, the E of engagement is to engage in that space legislatively as well as as a movement with other partners to really focus on what is important about this movement for it to sustain and sustainability comes with truth. What are some of the falsehoods of this? So there are a lot of conspiracies around this. There's this satanic movement of, I mean, it's really wide, the QAnon movement. About, okay. Um, okay, now I know. Yeah, and the save the children was a hashtag that went out, which is, that's a good phrase, save the children, right? right. But it was very spun in a very 
in a way that conspiracies were a part of that, right? And so we want to be able to debunk that. We want to be able to join together with the anti-trafficking movement and say, this is not okay. We need to be real on what the statistics you shared earlier, right? What really is happening. Because it gives people, what it does is it gives them a false sense of security. So they think conspiracy-wise, like, you know, this is all happening at some pizza parlor in the basement, when in fact, it's probably happening in the house two doors down from you that you may not know about, right? Right, right. Right. So yeah, debunking Pizzagate, debunking the Wayfair stuff, right? Debunking those things. That's it. Got it. Got it. And so those are our three E's. So that's education, employment, and engagement. And I, you know, we actually were very active in supporting the AB 1227 legislation that is the mandate in California for training and education for kids, as well as helpful in the uh, mandate in Utah too, which was also written there. But, you know, I think in all of this discussion, which I'm so grateful, Christine, that you've stood in this place. I'm so grateful for this time and opportunity to talk to you because I I really want your listeners to hear that they matter. (laughs) Their voice matters. It matters how they vote. It matters how they stand to understand what human trafficking is. You know, go to threestrandsglobalfoundation.org, right? Go to our website. We have a very easy website to be able to explain what human trafficking is and what it's not. We have all sorts of media around fact versus fiction that you can propagate and you can use to be able to really help stand in this place to say what human trafficking is and what root causes are and how it looks and how it actually happens. So I really encourage people to go there. If you have the propensity, you know, and you from a place of generosity that you feel like you want to give to what we do in our work, you know, you can do that from our website as well, which we would love um, to help. Also with the holidays coming up and people looking for gifts, I know that you website. beautiful bracelets and bags and stuff. Yes. So you can go to our website. If you look under um, more, there's a shop button and you can go there and you can order bracelets for the holidays and beanies as well. And we even have masks now too. So you can do that as well. Are they all made by survivors? Is it... Yes. In fact, every single one are actually made. So can't we, we have bracelets from Cambodia as well as Nepal, as well as this most recent, the masks were made in Romania. Beautiful. Beautiful. I did. I saw the beanies. They're hand knitted. They're exceptional. Yes. So I, I know that that's going to be on my list. Yeah. Ashley, can you tell me, so this is, I ask every guest who's been on, everyone has their work. And at some point you get frustrated. At some point you come up to roadblocks. It's not just this easy path that I'm going to fight human trafficking and everything's going to be eradicated. It's a marathon. It's not mm-hmm. a sprint. What is the reason for you to get up in the morning? What continues you to keep being the change and making a difference on behalf of the survivors? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have always, for all the time that I have, all the years I've done this work, I focus on the stories of those children that we have had teachers identify in the classroom or those stories of the survivors who we have employed and have told us afterwards that they've now been promoted and they're supervising others. Those stories make the difference in everything because you're right. There are barriers. In fact, one of our social workers today, we wrote a grant that we didn't get, an OVC, Office of Victims Crimes grant that we didn't get. And she was incredibly discouraged and disappointed. And she, she called me and she was tearful. And you know, we talked it through. And at the end of the conversation, she said, you know what, Ashley, what I love when I'm on the conversation with you is that we turn disappointment into action. 
And I think that that's what it's about, right? It's about the disappointment of this crime happening in the world is to realize it, acknowledge it, and turn our disappointment into action. Mm. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Ashley, for doing that and turning this into this very, very real, horrific problem and and turning it into action and for being the change on behalf of everyone. Thank you. No, thank you so much. And I... I know you'll put our website. So however people want to be able to yeah, connect. With I us. want you to mention that as we close, tell us how can we find you again, please? Yeah. Yeah. So the easy way is it's www. And not the T H R E E, but the number three and then S G F strands, global org. So the three strands, global foundation, and you can write out the whole thing too, but the easy way is three S G F.org. Great. And where are you on Instagram? Instagram, it's Three Strands Global and Facebook, Three Strands Global. And then on LinkedIn, it's Three Strands Global Foundation. And on Twitter, it's at Three Strands Global Foundation. Great. And if people want to have this, you know, brought into our schools, their schools and stuff, the moms can reach out. Absolutely. um, And I think that that's an important piece. On our website, you'll find under education, a link to the Protect program and an email address. And you can go ahead, people can click on that and email our regional directors um, and where they're at and we can respond. Wonderful. I have a friend that I'm interviewing in a week who had said, I said, how do we change this? And he said, moms, it's moms. Moms make the difference. So from this mom to you, thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you for being the change. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christine. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.